0: My name is John Bechtel. I'm the associate pastor here. And as Ryan mentioned earlier, we are glad you made the gauntlet uh, to make it here. And uh, this is a very unique Sunday for us. Uh, there's the crew. Um, the crew is not here. There's a lot of things going on, but we're glad that you guys made it here to worship with us this morning. Pastor Jason is, an, is not here this morning. And if if you were here long enough, you're going to hear Pastor Jason um, refer to our church as a teaching hospital. We function like a teaching hospital. And by that we mean we want to give people opportunities to do what scripture calls us to do as a church to help help people fan into the flame the gifts that God has given them. And there's also a call to leaders of the church to to pass on to entrust gospel ministry to the younger generation. And that's something we believe strongly in and, and so this pulpit isn't only filled by Pastor Jason. It is filled by by uh, young men who are, who are growing and studying and seeking to follow God, and the, they're calling their lives to teach God's people. And with that said, we have a very special uh, speaker this morning. He is one of our own. He's Trent Rogers. There's a lot of ways I could uh, introduce Trent to you. I could s- explain to you that he is a budding New Testament scholar who's pursuing his Ph.D., but I'm not going to talk about that. I could explain how he's a world-class athlete who trains world-class athletes, but I'm not going to talk about that. What I, am wanted, what I do want to mention briefly before he comes up here is, is Trent's heart. In the brief time that I've gotten to know him, I'm so grateful for his heart for the Lord and the way that it, it, it is demonstrated in the way that he cares and he serves. If you know Trent, you know he is a servant who is willing to do anything for the body of Christ. But more than that, I love his heart for the lost, that he's willing to take risks to go out and to share his faith so that others will come to know him. So, so brother, you're going to come up here and bring us your word. Bring, bring the word here today.
1: If you'd like to borrow a Bible, uh, please raise your hand, and the ushers will bring one to you. I know that it's customary for guest preachers to offer some joke or, or humorous story to ingratiate the audience, but uh, I learned very early on that my sense of humor had the opposite effect on, on the congregation. So I don't bring a joke this morning, but I would like to talk about uh, the history of my teaching experiences at EBF. About a year ago, Jared Satrum, who was a, a deacon here at EBF, called me and said, Trent, we're going to do a secret church, and we'd really like for you to teach at it. I said, sure, that, that sounds great, Jared oh, and by the way, you're going to start at 11 p.m. Who teaches at 11 p.m.? And then about three or four months ago, Pastor John contacted me and said, Trent, we're going to do a summer evangelism class, and we'd really like for you to teach it. Okay, that sounds great, John. Oh, and by the way, you're going to start at 6.30 a.m. Who who teaches at 6.30 a.m.? So when Pastor Jason contacted me, and said, Trent, we'd like for you to preach the first, the first Sunday in November. I thought, great. The one thing you can't change? Preaching times. <laughs> oh, and by the way, that's daylight savings time ending, and we move the service up an hour. I just present the facts this morning, and I'll leave the interpretation up to you. But if you're visiting this morning, I encourage you to return next week for, at the normal time, 10 a.m., with the normal pastor. And for that matter, if, if you're not visiting, I encourage you to return also. Before we get into Matthew 21, the triumphal entry, we need to understand at the outset that our way of seeing Jesus is slightly different than it would have been for those first century readers. The first categories that we use for, for understanding Jesus are different than it would have been for Matthew's audience. And I want to illustrate this by by talking about the summer evangelism class. One of the things that we did is we went out and we shared the gospel with people on the street. And a tool that we used was a survey. And one of the questions in the survey was this. Who is Jesus and how do you know? Who is Jesus and how do you know? And and frankly, I had no idea what people would respond to this. But about 90% of the people said, Jesus is the son of God because the Bible tells me so. Jesus is the Son of God, because the Bible tells me so. But for Matthew's audience, it would have been slightly different. Their first categories for understanding Jesus would have been a little different. You see, these are people that, they, they saw the human Jesus, right? They might have seen him give sight to the blind, or to heal the leprous man. They might have, they might have eaten from, from the bread that he gave when he fed the 5,000, or the 4,000. Their first conception of him is that he is, he is a human, right? This great man, albeit, the prophet from Nazareth. And at the heart of Matthew's writing is an explanation that Jesus is the Son of God. And this passage in particular explains who Jesus is. Now, this is a dense passage, and it requires a lot of explanation, and it's, it's not immediately applicable. It's not like that, that sermon that Jason gave on Forgiving your brother. I think I took two bulletins of notes that Sunday, but I think when we we look at the text We see that it's a powerful text that helps us understand who Jesus is and respond in faith and obedience So in keeping with the church calendar, let's read the Palm Sunday text in November And that is as funny as it'll get this morning. I I promise so Matthew chapter 21 Humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he said on them, Most of the crowd that spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest And when he entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying who is this? And the crowd said this is Jesus the prophet From Nazareth in Galilee And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons He said to them it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer But you make it a den of robbers And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Did you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now, I'm going to proceed with the method that we usually do and just take chunks of Matthew. The first chunk that we're going to look at is Matthew 21, 1 through 5. And it begins, when they drew near to Jerusalem. And this is a a major narratival marker in Matthew. This is something that really explains where the story is going. If we flip back quickly to last week's text in chapter 20, verse 17 through 19, we'll see how how it leads up to this. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised again on the third day. So when we encounter in verse 1 that they were drawing near to Jerusalem, We know where the text is going, right? Jesus knows what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. And his disciples now know it. Matthew's audience knows it. And now we know it. So there's a a certain anxiety in the text as all events now are leading to the crucifixion of Christ. Let me read again the first three verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, "The Lord's need the Lord needs them, and He will send them at once." So when we approach this text, and we know that it's leading to the cross, these first five verses want us to see two things: first, the sovereignty of the Son, and secondly, the sovereignty of the Father. And the sovereignty of the Son is displayed and arranging all events here for his crucifixion. These first three verses talk about how Jesus is is arranging things for a very public and deliberate entry into Jerusalem. And and we miss the text in Matthew if we don't realize how deliberate and how unmistakable this would have been. Uh, A contemporary uh, piece of Jewish writing, the Mishnah, actually forbids that anybody ride into Jerusalem During Passover. So Jesus would have been the only person riding into Jerusalem. It was a a public, intentional act. And in some ways, it's it's a a major shift in Matthew because it's an overturning of what we call the messianic secret. And, And that that that's just that up until now, Jesus has healed people, and he says, Don't tell anybody. Like the leprous man in Matthew 8, he says to him, He says, I've healed you. Go to to the temple, offer the sacrifice that Moses prescribed, but don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody that it it was me. You know, If you were reading the message, it probably says something like, uh, keep this on the DL. And if you don't know what the message is and and you don't know what DL is, ask somebody under 30 and and they they can explain it to you. So we see the sovereignty of the Son in arranging all these events for this for this great entry into Jerusalem. And then we see the sovereignty of the Father and directing all things in the course of Scripture, in the course of history, pointing towards the cross of Christ. And we see this especially in verses 4 through 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on the colt. Full of a beast of burden, and we see that this text could only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ as, as God sovereignly is directing all events towards the cross of Christ. And we see this as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and their hopes of salvation. But when we, when we see a New Testament author quote an Old Testament text, there's a, there's a couple things that we need to keep in mind. The first thing is they can do this in a number of ways, right? A New Testament author can make an allusion to an Old Testament text. You can He can make a typological fulfillment of an Old Testament text, or he can have literal fulfillment, that this happens to be literal fulfillment as Jesus literally rides in on a donkey. But the second and, and probably more important thing for us to remember here is that when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament text, he's not just quoting Zechariah 9.9. He's quoting the context all around Zechariah 9.9. There, there weren't verses at this time. There, there weren't even vowels at this time in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, so nobody could isolate a, a specific verse. And to illustrate this, I, I think it would be appropriate maybe to quote something that you, you all know well. If I said, if I said as, doc, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream, so I share that same dream. Now, now, what dream am I talking about? Am I, am I talking about a dream for financial success, career success, to be a professional basketball player? My height-to-weight ratio ruled that out very early on. Now, <laughs> you, understand, you understand that I'm talking about a dream of erasing racial inequality, of erasing social injustices. And you get that from the context, the context of the speech that you already know we don't have time this morning to dive into all these Old Testament texts, but, but let me read to you the immediate context of Zechariah, and you'll see how God foreordained this to be fulfilled in Jesus' life. So Zechariah 9, 8 through 11. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now there's a number of things that we we can note in this passage from Zechariah. Let me highlight just a few. Zechariah predicts a freedom from oppression. And it's a freedom brought about by this conquering king. But the king doesn't come to bring war. The king comes to bring peace. And he doesn't come... On a war horse, he comes riding lowly on a donkey. And his peace extends even to the nations, and it's through the blood of his covenant. And remember that Matthew's is the gospel that ends after Jesus' blood of the covenant has been spilt, that peace is proclaimed to the nations as the church is sent out in the Great Commission. Now, this is, this is a good time to pause And think about how we see Jesus in these last days. See, on the surface, we we look at Jesus and we see him as a a victim, right? I mean, he's the victim of, of a sham Jewish trial. He's the victim of a Roman beating and a flogging. He's the victim of a crucifixion. He's murdered. But in a certain sense, when we see the sovereignty of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father, we realize that he's no victim. John picks this up in quoting the words of Jesus in John 10. Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from the Father. So yes, there is a sense in which Jesus is this victim, But there's a certain sense in which Jesus chooses these nails, right? He chooses the cross. And we miss the message of the cross if we don't see the love of the Father and the love of the Son expressed in their sovereign ordering of events to bring about the death of Jesus and the redemption of humanity. And when we ask, when we ask, why would the Father sovereignly arrange and why would the Son sovereignly arrange... For the death of Jesus. We can give no satisfactory answer other than the love of God for lost humanity. So even at this early stage in the text, it calls us to thankfulness. And when we understand the greatness of God's love and his sovereignty, we must respond in faith and obedience. Now, those of you that are checking your watches, I realize that I'm going to have to speed up a little bit if I'm going to get through all of, these, all of this text. So let's move on in verses 6 through 11. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he said on them, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, there's a certain sense in which this is a really remarkable entry, right? I mean, I just described it as a very public, unmistakable act. And it's amazing what happens. But if if we step back from this and think about triumphal entries in the ancient world, it becomes a little less magnificent. Uh, About 40 years later from when Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, the emperor Vespasian's son, Titus, is going to march into Jerusalem. He's going to raise the city to the ground and just destroy everything. And then when he goes back to Rome, when he goes back to Rome in triumph, the whole city, the whole city of Rome, not just Jerusalem, comes out to greet him. And the senators come out to give him honor. They throw flower petals on the ground and trumpets are blowing. He rides into the city on a mighty war horse. And you see the contrast, right? You see the contrast between what Titus got and what Jesus got. Instead of flowers on the ground, Jesus had raggedy cloaks. Instead of trumpets, he was greeted with shouts. Instead of a war horse, he rode a donkey. Instead of a great procession, crowds followed him. Instead of being honored by Roman senators... He was greeted by Jewish peasants. Instead of being called a, a vir triumphalus, which, which is a triumphant man, he was called a criminal. And what awaits him is not that triumphal arch that Titus got, but a cross. Now, I don't know how many of you have experienced riding on a donkey. Is anybody in here ridden on a donkey? One. We've or two or three. Okay. I grew up in the country, okay? And my friend had a, had a cattle farm, and it just so happened that he had a donkey and a horse. And if you know anything of the generosity of teenagers, you can guess which one I rode. Yes, I, I rode the donkey. And, and a donkey is fine for pulling a cart or, or doing some menial labor like that, but you just don't want to ride a donkey for a long period of time. They're, they're bony, and they're not very comfortable, and they're not that glamorous. If you try to run a donkey, they just become clumsy. So you see, it's not that not that glamorous in some sense of an entry into Jerusalem, but the shout, the crowds still shout Hosanna, Hosanna, and Hosanna is is simply a transliteration of Hebrew meaning save, save God, and it might take on more of a popular connotation of of praise God, but there's no sense in this text, that the crowds are crying out for a spiritual liberation. It seems at this time that they're, they're wanting this political liberation. And I think in some, some respects that's, that's understandable, right? The, 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 the passage that they saw fulfilled in Zechariah says, no oppressor will again march over them. That seems to be kind of political. And they see their conquering king entering triumphantly into the city, And there's this expectation. And you have to remember, what feast are they celebrating? Celebrating Passover. And what does Passover celebrate? In a certain sense, it's a political liberation. Several hundred years earlier, when, when the Egyptians had enslaved God's people, God came in and he miraculously delivered them. And you can see with this expectation in the air during Passover and the triumphant king entering into Jerusalem with scriptures being fulfilled, there's a certain expectation of the crowd saying, save God, save. Save us as you did from the Egyptians. Overthrow the Romans like you did the Egyptians. But this king brings peace through sacrifice. He brings peace liberation through blood, and it's not the blood of his enemies, it's his own blood. And then the crowds quote Psalm 118, which is a praise for God for his mighty deliverer. And when they ask him, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? They respond, it's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So that Jesus is this triumphant king. He's the the son of David, which, which is a messianic title that means he's the great deliverer that we expect. He's the triumphant king, the son of David, the delivering Messiah, and the prophet. And the point is this, that all of Israel's hopes, everything they wanted and expected, were focused on this one human being, Jesus Christ. And indeed, the hopes of the whole world were focused on Jesus of Nazareth. I apologize, my, my voice faded this week, so I'm going to have to drink a lot throughout. Now, when we see the crowds worship Jesus, we see them shout, Hosanna. We can't think, we can't help but think what they're going to do a few chapters later, right? A few days later, persuaded by the religious leaders, they're not going to shout, Hosanna. Or they're going to shout, crucify him, crucify him. And the fickleness of the crowd is intended to make us examine our own hearts here. Would we be shouting, Hosanna, or or, crucify him? And I read this, and I'm like, how could they be so fickle? How could they go from from praising God to just a few days later saying, crucify him, crucify this Messiah? But I think if we're honest, we realize that, that our hearts are pretty fickle too. Now... Now that John mentioned the summer evangelism class, and I mentioned it twice, you must be thinking that I'm a super evangelist. But that's not really the case. I'm going to confess that right now. In fact, I want to demonstrate my own fickleness. When uh, This summer, we went down to the campus at Loyola, and we were going to share the gospel with people. And this particular day, I just wasn't feeling it, you know? I just didn't want to be obedient. And I began to have these doubts. I began to think, what if my classmates see me? What, what are they going to think? Are they going to think I'm a religious zealot? What if my professors see me? What will they think of me? Will they, will they discredit anything I do academically because I'm out here sharing the gospel? What will my dissertation supervisor think if he sees me out here sharing the gospel with people on the street? And I had these doubts And my heart was far from God. And no, I didn't shout, crucify him. But I I denied the the reality uh, of of what Jesus had done on the cross, right? By not being willing to share that with other people. So what do we do when our hearts are far from God? Now, Matthew doesn't develop this, so I'll only mention these in brief. And uh, they shouldn't surprise you. Prayer, scripture, and the church. And here's how it functioned with me. I began to pray for a changed heart that, that God would, would move in me. And I began to read scriptures that described the work of Christ on my behalf. And in the church function like this, I was, I was there with Chipper, and Chipper come, came alongside me, and, and he encouraged me and called me to faithfulness. Let's move on in the text, 12 through 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And if our extra biblical records are correct, at this time, Caiaphas, who who was a high priest, he moved the, the marketplace for the temple out of the nearby Kidron Valley into the temple precincts itself so that someone who was coming to worship God in the temple would be greeted by the the bleeding of sheep, the the fluttering of pigeons, and people at money tables bartering over exchange rates. And it wouldn't have been that reverential of an environment. And the irony is this, that the religious leaders want to exploit the worship of God for profit. And Jesus wants to give himself freely to provide for true worship. And the first action of the king is remarkable, right? He doesn't go right to the praetorium. He doesn't go right to Pilate. He doesn't overthrow the Romans. Could he have overthrown the Romans? Of course he could have. But he has a different mission. He came not to give political liberation, but freedom from sin. And not just freedom, but sonship and not just for one ethnic people, but for all humanity. He came to correct worship. And when we think, what would you want a conquering king to correct? What do, you want, what do you want the king to correct? The first categories that we probably think of, the problems with society, are things like injustice, crime, abuse, or corruption. But these are merely implications of the fundamental problem of improper worship. And the primary messianic act, the primary act of this God-sent deliverer is not political liberation, but the provision for humans to worship God properly as sons of God. And then the primary action of the church is not just social action, but a proclamation of the gospel message. So I want to ask, how have you responded to the liberation that this king offers? Verse fourteen, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, I'm going to stop right there. That that seems like seems like it's just a, a, a inconsequential verse, just inserted there, it doesn't have a lot of meaning. But I think it's an important verse to understand that this this mighty conquering king comes in Jerusalem, and he comes as a compassionate healer, and his healings also function to verify that he is indeed the Messiah. If you remember in uh, chapter 11 that John sent his disciples to Jesus, and and they, they asked him, said, Jesus, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or do we wait for another? Jesus, as is typical, didn't just say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He said to them this. He said, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news brought to him. So that Jesus as this great healer verifies that he is indeed the expected Messiah. He is the deliverer sent from God. Let's read the last few verses that we have, 15 through 17. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So the the story goes something like this, right? Jesus heals people. The children praise and the leaders reject. And then Jesus quotes scripture. And he quotes Psalm 8 too. And Psalm 8 too, again, might not seem that significant. But remember, when we have an Old Testament quotation from a New Testament author, we read the context around it. And the context of Psalm 8 is this. It praises God who is the creator and worthy of praise. And when Jesus, when Jesus quotes this, it works something like this. He says, God is worthy of praise, and I am worthy of that same praise with the effect that Jesus himself is God. And that's a remarkable, remarkable quotation, and the religious leaders don't miss it. So in this last story, there's an implicit argument from the lesser to the greater. If these these uneducated children, these, these children who don't know the Old Testament, if they recognize Jesus as their deliverer, as the Messiah, and they praise God, how much more should these religious leaders that have spent their whole life studying the Scripture recognize Jesus as the Messiah? And then how much more should we recognize Jesus as this great deliverer? And again, I ask... How have you responded to the proclamation of Jesus' kingship? Now that we've seen the king coming into Jerusalem on this donkey, it's important to remember that the story doesn't end there, right? We know how the story is going to end. And to illustrate the, the difference between when Jesus comes on this donkey to when he comes on the white horse, I want to read a text from Revelation. And I want you to, want you to see the contrast the donkey to the white horse, because it sets up, as it were, a time of salvation, a brief time in the history of humanity when people can make a decision for salvation and accept the the liberation that this king offers. So just listen to this text from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And friends, you don't want to meet this king as a rebel. And as I mentioned, it sets up a time of salvation, a brief time in the history where you have between this coming on the donkey and the coming on the white horse to make a decision to follow Jesus. John Piper, a a pastor, says it like this. He says, you don't want to meet Jesus on the white horse, having rejected him on the donkey. And if you're ready this morning to become a subject and a son of the king, here's how you go about that. You acknowledge your rebellions against the king. We call these sins. You come to him repenting and forsaking of that rebellion. You ask for forgiveness through the sacrifice of his son. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior. But for those of you today who already are Christians, who already are subjects and sons of the king, you might need to renew afresh your submission to the rule of God in your life. And it's important to ask us what, what practically what, what practically rules our life. What really does rule our life? Even though we know that Jesus is our King, And our ethos group curriculum ha- has been getting at these questions. Right, identifying what are the false kings? What are the false gods in our lives? So here are some questions that you've heard in some form or another uh, that just help identify what are the false kings. I would say that they'll be on the screen behind me, but there's no screen back there today. Five questions. When I have free time, what do I think about the most? When I have free time, what do I think about the most? When I'm not working on something or occupied with something, what occupies my thoughts? Question two What do I want more than I want to be holy? What goal, achievement, or pleasure am I willing to cheat to get? What what will I sacrifice my Christian integrity for? Question three, what am I most likely to spend non-budgeted money on? Uh, Jesus recognizes time and again that that our money habits are, are a window into our hearts. Question four, this is a question for me especially, what makes my heart anxious and unsettled? if I think I might not get that? What makes me anxious? What, what really causes a, a turmoil in my heart if I won't get it? And this last one is, is especially for students, but I think it applies to all of us. What is the most determinative factor in selecting a major, a career, or accepting a job? How do we evaluate that decision? Is it money? Is it success? Is it how others will perceive you? Is it have a great career? Is it a desire for ease? The possibility of early retirement, maybe? Or a provision for children or, or pleasure? And friends, these all make terrible kings. Let us abandon these and, and serve the true king who gave us life for ours. And if you want to respond to the call of the king in your life today, if you want to respond either for the first time or to renew afresh that commitment to God's rule in your life, the elders after the service will be on either side of the auditorium and they would, they would love to talk to you about, about submitting to the rule of God in your life. Now we're going to continue singing and, and in this, this last song, I want you to realize something. I want you to realize the contrast in the first verse and the contrast in the second verse. The, the first verse talks about this triumphant king coming. He coming on the clouds but the second verse talks about him coming to bring salvation. And we can, see that, we can see the contrast now, so think about that when you sing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins. We thank you that your son came as, a, as the compassionate king to draw rebels to himself. And I ask now that you stir in the hearts of those who don't know you this morning draw them to yourself, and lead them to submit to Christ's kingship. And I also pray for those who are sons of the king today. Help us to throw off our false kings and pursue you who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.